Changing the world of work isn't about tactics. It's not about meetings or metrics. It isn't about the benefits, perks, or opportunities. It's about being brave enough to put love first. Everything rises and falls on leadership. So as leaders, we're the ones who have to make it happen. This is the Love in Action Podcast. And here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. From beautiful Chattanooga, Tennessee, welcome Love in Action Nation and the world. Glad you can join us for what I know will be another great conversation. You know, every now and then, I have to remind people about what this podcast is. You know, we got this title and people jump into the wrong conclusions with the word love in it. So if you're new to the show and you stumbled in and uh, decided to check it out, here's what we do here. We have amazing conversations with the world's business thought leaders, authors, executives, and scholars with one clear aim, to educate and inspire leaders just like you to act on seeing people in the workplace as real human beings and not just as objects in a transaction. Because what we found is that the dynamic is radically different when humans come first and when things like trust, respect, care, empathy, collaboration, safety, and belonging are in place. In fact, when all those things are in place, fear is driven out and love in action creates real competitive advantage. And that's what we're all about here. So my guest today is none other than Richard Boyatzis, a renowned expert on emotional intelligence and a best-selling author. Richard, along with his colleagues Melvin Smith and Ellen Van Oosten at Case Western University, they've uncovered a more effective approach to helping people learn and change behaviors. And their findings have now been published in this captivating new book called Helping People Change, which was just released on September 10. Richard is a distinguished university professor and scholar and the co-author of some amazing books, including bestsellers Primal Leadership, which he co-wrote with luminaries Daniel Goleman and Annie McKee, whom, by the way, I featured back on episode 13. So let's dive in. Here's my conversation with Richard Boyatzis. Richard, it's an honor to have you. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast. Thank you, Marcel. Thank you for having me. So I always start with this. What makes you smile when you get up in the morning these days? Um, several things. One of them is uh, the playfulness of my two golden retrievers. <laughs> uh, uh, the, the other, like this morning, we had an absolutely startling crimson sky mm. because we're on the ocean facing straight east. Um, and uh, I, I live in Cape Cod. And it is amazing uh, this morning, the uh, colors of the skies. So, you know, I, I usually get in a pretty good mood by the time my wife decides to uh, get up and then she starts stirring. And, you know, so by the time we get to chatting, uh, it's usually in an upbeat way. So, yeah, that whole, Excellent. I love the mornings. Excellent. 
Um, Richard, I want to start with talking about your book a little bit, um, but before we kind of drill down <clears throat> to some of the, the key concepts and findings, I, I want to just skim the surface at the top. So what, what would you say is the big idea behind helping people change? Right. Most of us want to try to help others either learn or change, whether as parents, managers, physicians, nurses, therapists, coaches, um, in all these realms, parents. The problem is we almost always go about it with a degree of urgency and wanting to help change the person and fix them. And in the process, we do things, even though well-intended, in a way which has the exact opposite effect, which it causes the person to psychologically, emotionally, to neurologically and hormonally close down to new ideas. And that for the past 30 years, we've been studying this very carefully at Case Western Reserve University. And um, in the past 10 years, I've really focused on the coaching relationship as a a label for any of these helping relationships. And we have been able to show with 39 behavioral studies, three F longitudinal studies uh, with adults, three fMRI studies and two hormonal studies that the way to reach people to help them open up to change is not to try to fix them and to try to inspire them into this psychophysiological state that makes them open. And that state is called, we call it the positive emotional attractor. It really is a state in which a person is open to new ideas and to people. So we advocate an approach which we call coaching with compassion rather than coaching for compliance. And we feel, I mean, the big idea is if we cared for the other person, genuinely for them, not our version of what they should be, we would do a lot more to helping people be open and to try to reach for the dreams of what their life and work could be. Yeah. Okay. So what's, why is it our tendency to try to fix people? So you talked about coaching for compliance. That's yeah, such right. a natural, a natural tendency for us to, to do well, that. I mean, there's several things that are negative characteristics and there's some that are positive. Let me go to the negative first because they um, strike people the most. You know, one is an awful lot of us, once we're in a position of influence or authority or power, um, feel like we know what we're doing. And in some self-righteous mode, we think we know better. So we're going to tell the person what they should do. And of course, they should accept it. And again, if, if you come out of a physician or a nurse mentality, you know, you've got white coats and stethoscopes to do it. If you're a parent, you may feel a deep sense of obligation, but nonetheless, what comes with it is the implicit assumption that you know what's good for the other person. And you may or may not. And yeah. we have stories in the book where well-minded people hurt others because they didn't stop and ask them what it is they were doing or why they were thinking that way or, uh, or something like that. So one is this self-righteousness of one's own position. Mm. And we know narcissism is rampant in our society today. And I think that leads itself to people being pushy. Um, you know, we're, it's mild forms of bullying, but it's bullying nonetheless. Um, yeah. That's one issue. Another is uh, people are in a hurry. Everybody seems to be so concerned with getting things done fast that they often don't worry about getting it done right. 
and the speed issue ends up precluding often um, people doing things that otherwise they'd know they shouldn't do. And by that, I mean, if you're in a hurry and you're looking at time as the important issue, not is the person learning, then all of a sudden you're going to focus on time and you're going to be very instrumental and you're going to go to the thing that gets the idea out the quickest, which is you telling somebody rather than thinking about what is it the other person is hearing? What is it the other person is receiving? I mean, it's like we wrote a book in 1995 um, that focused on what happens when you take a graduate program and shift the focus from what you're teaching to what they're learning. Hmm. It's huge. I mean, it is a huge mind altering change. And most faculty can't handle that because we're social. So those are the two ones that jump out at me that are the the most. I mean, another thing that contributes to it is that we're all under a lot of stress. I mean, we are deluged with more chronic annoying stress than our bodies were meant to handle. You know, so at any point in this podcast, if anything in our electronic connection goes off, it's going to set off the sympathetic nervous system and you and me and anybody else contributing to this issue. Um, as we watch the clock unfold, you and I both start to get a little more nervous about that. All of these things add to a buildup. And when we're stressed, we're closing our perceptual field. We're closing our mind to the other person. And we start thinking again, what, what, what could I do that could get this quickly done? And we stop thinking about the real purpose, the underlying mission or vision of why we're doing what we're doing. Those are the negative reasons. The yeah. positive reason could be you really care about the person. You know, especially this happens with parents all the time. I mean, look at these horrible admission scandals going on yeah. where parents who are very wealthy are paying their, you know, the universities outrageous millions of dollars to try to get their son or daughter in when their son or daughter may not even want to go to university or college. Now, I mean, aside from the fact that these parents have committed a horrible breach of ethics that really hurts both the child through bad modeling, the university for accepting such ridiculous um, processes, and it precludes other people who may want it more and may be ready to learn more. But nonetheless, usually the parents didn't do it just for show. They did it because, well, some of them might have, but, but more of them did it because they were concerned about helping their kids along. And in that way, you know, people have been writing about this for a while, but a lot of parents end up overprotecting their kids. And in the overprotection, you, gener- you create a generation of people that feel um, entitled mm. to the coddling that takes away their, their own self-responsibility. So, wow. Okay. Those are a few of the reasons. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so let's flip the coin. So the evidence okay. is saying that coaching for compassion or coaching with compassion is the way to get people right. to, to change. So how, let's, let, what do you do that for us? Will you, how do sure. you do this? There, it's a, it's a way of approaching someone that helps to stimulate um, a psychophysiological state. Now, those are big words to say, you know, a psychological state of your mood and that focuses on more positive than negative. It can include negative, but it's more positive than negative. That hormonally is more on the parasympathetic nervous system rather than the sympathetic. So it's more on the hormonal system that allows you to ameliorate the 
uh, ravages of, of stress, even mild stress, and neurologically more in the empathic network in your brain, which makes you more open to new ideas and people, than the analytic network, which helps you make decisions, but makes you focus and ignore people and new ideas. So this state can be invoked in almost everybody with two key approaches. Yeah. And they aren't that complicated. One is ask a person about their dreams, not their goals. It turns out when you appeal to a person's dreams, their personal vision, their sense of purpose in a discussion, you lift their state up to something which just feels very different and mm. to them and to you. As soon as you start talking about specific goals, you narrow a person down, they feel obligated. And while goals are useful in any change process in latter stages, it turns off they stop the change process if they're done too early. So talking about a person's dreams, and by the way, if you're talking about your dreams, you have to go out a number of years. You, you can't talk about five years. You know, I, I mean, our favorite question is, if your life were absolutely perfect 10 to 15 years from now, what would it be like? And just let the person talk and ask mm. them for more clarifications. Ask for an image. Um, that vision, that sense of purpose, that ideal self helps people because it invokes hope. And the emotion hope is one of the triggers as well as the vision are triggers of this state that we want the person to be in. Once the person's in this state, they're more open to new ideas and other people, which brings us to the second way to do it. And that's to build and maintain more, we call resonant relationships, more caring relationships with other people in which there's a mutuality in which you feel in sync. I mean, this isn't new. Martin Buber talked about it, you know, with the I thou versus the I that it, uh, you know, almost a hundred years ago. And so we, we have this notion of kind of recreating something that is very basically human and caring, but we let a lot of things in life get in the way. And um, so working with dreams around hope and working with um, a good relationship, which stimulates compassion and gratitude, which again, activate this thing. Those are the two yeah. easiest ways. I mean, there are other ways. I mean, you could, do it by, uh, it, to some extent, by helping somebody do deep breathing or meditating or prayer to a loving right. God. You could do it by um, helping people less fortunate in the community or petting a dog. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you ask these questions to, to spark things like gratitude, like you said, hope, joy, right? Right. And, and you mentioned a term earlier, positive emotional attractors. So is that what's going to trigger our, our so I'm going to call it by its acronym, PEA, right? Positive yes. Emotional, yes. PEA. Okay, yes. so talk about what PEA is. And well, is that what we're after, is asking yes. these questions that is going to awaken our PEA? And what the, is PEA? This positive emotional attractor state is the thing I just described. Positive okay. affect, parasympathetic, hormonals, and uh, empathic network, neurally, neural network that when a person is in that state, they're open to, to a new ideas, to people, to emotions. And that's where a person needs to be around considering any learning or change process, mm -hmm. because that helps to create what, what's called the tipping point in complexity theory, that 
tips you into the next stage of evolving in a process. But it also is the state you want to periodically go into every day. Because if you suffer through a day that is just agonizingly filled with stress after stress, by the time you've gotten home, you've probably done inelastic damage to not just how you feel about life, to, to even, let me go so far as to say your inner spirit, but you are very likely to be impatient with your loved ones, to not listen to them, to not experience their joy or interest in them. So what it does is it closes us to other people and the very people we care the most about. Mm. Okay. And, or to hit on one of your themes, it closes us down to the very essence of love. Yeah, yeah. Let's bring this down to the, um, the leadership sort of in the trenches, if you're in a leadership role manager, et cetera, right. um, in a company. So how can a manager ask, what, what kind of questions would a manager ask? You gave the okay, example so, of, you know, what is your, what, you know, what, right. tell me about your dreams, 10, but yeah. we're talking about day to day where you're trying to get people yep. to perform at their best. Yeah, yeah. So first of all, for any manager, leader, executive, whether it's public sector, private sector, because I've, I, I had 17 years of doing this in the U S Navy and Marine Corps, um, even with SEAL teams and other kind of groups in that process, we had a lot of research that went into this. So these things are not, are not, you know, kind of fuzzy things in the sky. They're very concrete. Yeah. Okay. So it, I think it's the responsibility of every leader or manager to understand the dreams of the people who report to him or her. Now that's a premise that some people would object to. And those are the people that are a problem because the research that I've been doing since 1970, as well as a lot of my colleagues show that 70 to 80% of the people in management or leadership aren't adding value in mm -hmm. that job. And they could be taken out of that job, maybe kept in the organization, but taken out of that job and the organization would function more smoothly. So, the cost to it is huge. And right now, most of our organizations are sub-optimizing their human capital. They just don't do well. I don't want to go into naming names because then, you know, people start with hate mail and, you know, <laughs> tweeting and all this kind of stuff. But, right. but the fact is that this is true. And in any organization, there are a lot of people in management leadership positions who aren't very good at it. So when people say to me, well, I can't, you know, kind of understand the people who work to me, their dreams, you know, because suppose their dream doesn't involve working in this company. Then my answer is then they aren't now. Yeah. You know, I mean, your role is to understand that, among other things, to be able to look for opportunities for them that would be exciting. Mm -hmm. So if you have that kind of relationship, uh, and, and first and secondly, don't think that because something is quote unquote business, it means you can be impersonal or a jerk. It is not an excuse for it. Right. Everything is personal to those of us who are in the lower power position. So then the question comes in, you know, what do you want to do with your human capital? And most managers don't understand many, many do, I should say, I should say most. Many understand this. They have trouble consistently working it, which is their human capital is actually the capital, the, the thing that makes the clients, the products, the services, and the financial capital. So if you get the human capital activated, the people in your organization, they'll make magic happen. And a lot of organizations 
go the opposite. They diminish the human capital, and then they wonder why they aren't adaptive or innovative. Okay, so if a manager has never built a relationship, the first thing they should do with each person that reports them is get to know them. Get to know what makes them tick. So, yes, at some point you could have a coffee break where you say, you know, suppose you won $750 million, you know, in the Powerball. So after tax, you take home $300 million. How would your work or life change? You know, that's a more playful way to ask the dream question. Uh, and people have a good time with that. You can ask the dream question, like I said, over a 15-minute coffee break. Uh, yeah. You don't have to be in a big deal performance discussion. As a matter of fact, I would say that's the wrong time to try to get to know somebody. Um, checking in with people. You know, how are you doing this week? <laughs> What's new? Those are important human questions. And if you're going to ask the question, then don't just move on to the task. Wait for the answer. <laughs> in groups, in teams, in departments, in staff meetings, um, every time you bring people together, it should start off with some discussion of why are we here for at least five to eight minutes. What's our purpose? Not what's our goal, what's our purpose? Uh, you can ask questions about core values. Um, you can ask a, somebody else what kind of person they would love to be. And then if you want to ask something that isn't as much future-oriented, but in, invokes this PEA state, ask them, who has helped you the most in your life become who you are? Mm. Tell me about a few moments with that person or, the, or any one of those people. We find, when we actually do research with this question, we find that to be amazingly powerful and that most people will rattle off a number of people, sometimes one of their parents or grandparents and others in their life. Um, and when they talk about the events, they actually go into this state. And because of the emotional contagion, you as the person asking goes into that state. So all of a sudden, you have this rapport, this PEA moment that I have every morning with my two golden retrievers when they come up to me and want me to pet them after they've had their breakfast, uh, that it's, uh, it's the kind of moment with other humans that makes you feel we're human. So I, I think those are the very, I mean, they may sound impractical to people because they're not task oriented, but since I think understanding and managing and inspiring the state of mind and heart, if you will, of the people who report to you is a part of your task. It is task related. Hmm. Interesting that you, you just uh, maybe realized that in my speaking engagements, I do ask questions of my, of my audience members that I did not know until now that I'm actually awakening their, their PEA, their, their right. positive right. emotions. Because um, in, in trying to establish what love is in the workplace from a leadership standpoint, people are immediately put off by the word love and they go to all right. of the, the, the places in their minds that are, are not what I'm trying to get them. So I say, I ask a question, tell me about a time when you worked for a boss who cared for you and right. where you felt engaged and uh, yeah. respected and uh, you felt like there was purpose in your work. And then Outstanding. the light bulb goes on, they start to yeah. write and they, they go into their journal. Yeah. <clears throat> and then I tie that into, well, you were, that's how 
that that's what love is. That's, oh, that's you know, Marcel, I don't know if you make the 20 million a day that Anthony Robbins is supposedly making, but um, one of the reasons why people repeatedly ask you to do these speaking engagements or they come in and ask you or they're fans of your podcast, I think is because you're able to do that, mm. that you're able to ask questions or, and, and then they feel open and they start to enjoy listening to the other ideas you're talking about. Mm. So you've been doing this quite effectively. And I would say, suggest that the success of both the, you know, people's reaction to you in training or, or talks you give or the reaction to your interviews on the podcasts are uh, plenty of evidence. That's interesting. So you just helped to kind of link the brain science behind that. What, right. What's happening. I want to, I'm so curious about something uh, in your book about uh, the, diabetic patients and oh, right. how right. coaching for compassion helped those patients working yeah. with the doctor. Can you unpack that? Well, it's, uh, it was a study done by uh, a former MD who was in the PhD program. I was his advisor, Masood Kawaja, who's on the faculty of the medical school of the university of British Columbia right now, uh, doing teaching and research. But he, um, he wanted to look at what's called treatment adherence. And in medicine, Treatment adherence is, are you doing what your doctor, your, your physician, and your nurse tells you to do to either rehab or get better? And one of the most prevalent diseases around the world right now, except for sub-Saharan Africa, where AIDS is still um, a ravage, is diabetes or problems related to obesity, including insulin resistance, kind of diabetes almost. Mm -hmm. So... A physician or a nurse tells you once you're diagnosed, you have to lose weight, you have to eat the right kinds of foods, and you have to exercise more. That's it. The three things. I mean, if somebody is very extreme, then they might also prescribe certain sugar-reducing uh, medicines like a metformin or even to the point of um, injections of insulin or something. But th that's it. The fact is that when you measure this around the world, in the United States, as well as in Pakistan, where uh, Masood did his thesis research, uh, collected the data, people do about half of it. They do about 15%. And this issue of treatment adherence is a problem in every uh, malady that people have. I mean, it's been documented in published studies that treatment adherence for orthopedic surgery, you know, break an ankle, knee replacement, is about 50%. I, don't, I haven't seen a published study saying it, but cardiac thoracic surgeons that I know have as either students or colleagues or friends have continued to tell me over the years that um, treatment adherence for bypass surgery, coronary bypass surgery is about 20%. So you immediately ask the question, why? And a lot of medical research has looked at trying to see the kinds of things that affect that. And they've come up with things like you need better trust, better empathy, better information sharing, better sharing of decision-making and all that. Well, Masood thought all of that stuff was true, but it still wasn't working. So he designed a study where he collected that information as well as what the patient felt about their relationship to the physician. Mm. And in particular, he, he looked at the, the degree of trust and, and caring, but he also looked at the degree of shared vision. Do I think my physician has the same vision for my long-term future that I do? Hmm. And then he collected data on the treatment adherence from their caregivers. 
And lo and behold, the patient's perception of the degree of shared vision that their physician has with them about their long-term future mediated or moderated everything else that other medical research says affects treatment adherence. That means in non-statistical language, if you were to push one button to try to increase treatment adherence, you'd work on the shared vision. <laughs> and you can translate that to the workplace as well. Of course. Leader. Look, our engagement numbers. Mm -hmm. The engagement numbers in every industrialized part of the world are atrocious. You know, what is it? 76% in the U.S. people who have full-time jobs aren't engaged in their work. 83% in Europe. Last number I saw was 81% in Japan. That means that there is a worldwide motivation crisis, that even people who are working full-time, their bodies are showing up, but we don't know how much of their spirits or their minds or their capabilities are being used. Yeah. Actually, we do know. It's not much. That suggests that the motivation issue is really central. And part of it is, again, we have shown, not we, a number of my doctoral students in various fields with physicians, with IT managers, with knowledge workers, with bank executives, that, and, and I actually did a study directly with engineers showing that when they feel there is shared vision with the people they're immediately working with on their project teams or their boss, they're highly engaged. And when there isn't, they're not. Yeah. So this issue of shared purpose, shared meaning, which are synonyms for what the word I use is vision, um, really is very profound. Like, why are we doing what we're doing? Now, of course, it's important to know what we're trying to do. And yes, uh, organizations need goals. I, I was just trying to say before that goals aren't motivating at the beginning of a process because they help you to focus. And early in a process, you want to be more of change or learning. You want to be more open uh, to new things. But at some point, you need to actually get to the focus. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we're, we live in a hyper productivity focused business environment. It's fast paced. We're always thinking about results, results, results. So when people come to us, how do we get into that mindset in the moment, boom, where we sometimes may see the problem, but we are, uh, we're kind of ignoring the person in that right. moment. So what, what, tell us about what kind of mindset <laughs> that we have to be, what should we what? be doing differently? One of, my, uh, one of my former executive MBA students, this is maybe uh, 10, 11 years ago, um, who has given me permission to use this story. And okay. Juan Trebino was a major marketing, I mean, he's a marketing executive of a major multinational oil and gas company. And uh, he's now moved on for various uh, jobs, keep moving up and things. And one of the things that he had said, he was a very charming fellow. He was from Venezuela and Everybody loved him, did just like him, loved him. I mean, his social skills were great. But, and, and we went through the vision activities in my class and we got to the 360 and, you know, and his subordinates were saying, you know, he wasn't that good at developing them, which to me flew in the face of everything I'd seen in working with his colleagues who were all around 40 something. I said, Juan, what's going on? He said, uh, he said, I think I know. He said, you, you know me in my role as a marketing executive. He said, but I grew up as an engineer and my early work in, the, in every company, but in this one in particular was in engineering. He said, when people come to me with a problem, I don't even see the person. To me, people are problem bearing platforms, <laughs> which is a very engineering way to say it. 
Uh, so I think it starts with helping people realize that you have people working for you and who they may have people working for them and they may have people working for them who are the actual people who do the work. So you are dependent on one, two, three, four, five, six layers of people to be excited, motivated, and properly engaged before your clients are going to get the service they want, your patients are going to get treated properly, your students are going to be excited about learning, and your children will focus on the better things in life instead of uh, the things that are bad for their bodies or their minds or too expensive. That appreciation is a major mindset shift. Uh, no organization in the world exists to make money. None. They exist to serve some purpose. Making money is how they measure how effectively they're doing. And that confusion of measures with effectiveness is another thing that contributes to this um, distraction, if not disinformation, as to what the mindset needs to be for people in positions of responsibility. I mean, how many times have you sat and listened to other speakers go through their material, you know, and everybody is, you know, kind of rolling their eyes or checking their cell phones, um, maybe laughing here and there, but on the whole, don't really care. And an hour and a half later, you say, what did that person say? And you say, I don't know. Um, <laughs> and that's because chances are that speaker or presenter was more interested in covering their material than engaging their audience. Yeah. So this issue of I'm there for them and my job is to bring them out and I'm not going to get results unless they're excited and up for it on top of the fact that they may have to be doing that to other people who may have to be doing this to other people to get the results, get the clients with the service or the new products or the innovations. An interesting thing corporately, and this works just as seriously in nonprofits, is that when you get into this NEA, the negative emotional attractor state, the opposite of the positive that we were talking about before, your mind, your perceptual field of vision, your peripheral vision drops down to something in the 30 degree range, mm. which means you don't see a lot of stuff going on around. So in companies, we have these attitudes of, well, we don't do it that way here, or that wasn't invented here. In, in strategy field, it's called competition neglect where you didn't even see this major change happening in the world. And you could contend that one of the issues going on is we're competing every day in a very large, very complex environment. And if you're not scanning the environment, you're going to lose. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So coaching for compassion, I, I'm guessing is predicated on the fact that you need coaches to begin with or people with the capacity to coach or maybe having people around that are coaches. Well, what if you don't have access to a coach or uh, yeah, we, yeah. we didn't write the book for coaches. We wrote the book for anybody <clears throat> in a position of helping. Okay. So our feeling is we're using coaching as a process. Um, that is that every manager, every physician, every nurse, every teacher, Every social worker, therapist, cleric, parent spends a certain amount of their day or should helping others learn or change. So we're saying instead of focusing on the end result of the task, focus on the person and how you're engaging that person to do the task. 
And that's why we use the term coaching. Um, What we want to get to is to have people who are in any of these positions of helping be more facile with these ways of doing it. But that also implies that if I'm a peer or a colleague, I can also coach another peer or colleague. In In chapter eight of the book, we talked about what are some of the ways that people in organizations, both government and private sector, affect this? And yeah, we tell some great stories about how Cisco is doing it and how the FBI is doing it and, 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 and how Marriott is doing it. But one of the things that's very clear is all of these organizations stimulate an awareness of using internal and external coaches. And some of them try to get their managers to use more coaching behavior. But the organizations that are moving even further on this toward a culture of caring, a culture of compassion, a culture of coaching, are those that um, invite and help facilitate peer coaching. So you're very accurate, Marcel, when you said the longest enduring, the most sustainable way we can help this in an organization is to change the norms. How do you change the norms? You get people willingly forming of their own volitions, organically, not by instruction, groups, whether they're groups of threes or fives or eights, but, and we used to call them study groups at times. <clears throat> now we call them peer coaching groups. I mean, hell, there was a time in which we called it having friends, but we don't have time <laughs> for friends anymore. So, you know, so the idea is that the more we do this, the more we'll facilitate people not relying on a limited number of people in their environment, but relying on others to care for each other, to yeah. help each other through with addressing problems, but also pulling on their dreams. Yeah. Richard, I want to transition to uh, the topics of uh, love and fear. And I think there's direct application with, uh, with the, um, you know, the compassionate uh, coaching and the, you know, drawing people out with, with these questions to evoke gratitude and joy, et cetera. But in fear-based environments, I don't, I I see that being stifled. So what fear, yeah. Yeah. Fear activates the negative emotional attractor, Mm -hmm. period. You don't have to qualify it. It does. People, humans, um, unless there is really something severely wrong with their uh, wiring, they will defend themselves. And most human organisms will defend themselves, even if the person doesn't try to. That defense is a part of why the sympathetic nervous system is so important. The body's stress response. That happens when you're in a fear environment. Now, if you're in an environment which stimulates fear on a regular basis, before you even get into the environment, you're getting ready for that. And it doesn't take much to set it off. I mean, a very famous uh, psychologist, Roy Bowmeister, wrote um, with some colleagues a series of articles, but one in particular, in which he demonstrated all the research shows that negative emotions are far stronger than positive. And it's one of the reasons why if you want to balance them, you have to emphasize the positive more, not exclusively, but more. But if negative emotions are stronger, then and, and, and in the stress literature, it says that there are four things that stimulate the sympathetic nervous system, the body's stress response. Mm-hmm. One is when something is really important to you, that makes it a higher risk, up goes the stress. Two, um, when something's uncertain, the more uncertainty, the more the risk. Three, when somebody's watching you or supervising or observing you. Or four, 
and Robert Sapolsky makes this point strongly in his work, but others have too, the mere anticipation of one of those three. That means that as soon as you know that your boss goes viral on somebody, it could be once a month, but you don't know which day it is going to be, you go into work defensive. If you know that every time you get home, there is a lot of conflict and arguments at home, your body is going into a defensive fear response, stress response, before you even walk in the door. And once we are in that mode, we see everything as a threat. So the biggest cost of fear is not in the immediate moment. It's in the fact that it starts becoming a habit for people. And that really destroys the ability to, for people to be um, positive, effective, innovative, etc. cetera. Um, love, and if you allow love in its, you know, kind of gentler form, but we do know that long-term enduring love of a person with a partner, spouse, significant other does lead to more parasympathetic activation, which is the antithesis, more PEA of the stress. Yeah. We know that having a group of close friends that you interact with on a regular basis activates that. So I would suggest, and even the act of caring for people in your community who are less fortunate or the elderly, um, I try to encourage a lot of my students to consider being very caring for elderly professors. Um, so one of the issues that happens is that we invoke what is really a form of love. Hmm. And I think that is um, really at the heart of what the positive emotional attractor is. Uh, Sonia Lubrowski, a, a noted psychologist um, at the University of California, San Bernardino, has done all these studies of optimism and gratitude looking at well-being, sense of well-being, which is a very important inner state. And she showed, and she surprised herself one time by showing that, yes, writing in an optimism journal for 15 minutes every morning helps increase your sense of well-being whether it's seven-year-olds, 10-year-olds, 16-year-olds, or 30-year-olds, but writing in a gratitude journal for 15 minutes doubles that, almost doubles that impact. So I think the reason gratitude does is it makes us feel cared for, and our response when we're care feeling cared for is to care for others. So I'm using care in the same way you're probably using love. Right. Yeah, and it's interchangeably. So you are yeah. your work is living proof that um, leaders who lead through love, or as we call it, love in action, um, it works. And so right. the million-dollar right. question then becomes, why do people still lead with fear or through fear? Uh, for all the things that we kicked off this conversation about, why do people try to fix others? They're uh, in a hurry. They're self-righteous. They're... Um, I mean, look, narcissism is rampant in the world right now. Yeah. You know, and people who are narrow, which narcissism does makes you narrow, think that it's only the United States. You know, I've been in six countries in the last few months. In every country in the world I've been in, this is going on. So one of the dilemmas we have is with rampant narcissism, you have this notion that people feel they are self-righteously rigid and how the hell does anybody get anything done 
no one is open to a new idea or another person. And right now we're in a situation within the United States where if you actually share a view that is different than the view of the person who is speaking, you are labeled all sorts of nasty characteristics, um, immediately showing that the person doing this is perpetuating the very closing down of voice and being a bully that they thought we were, they were rallying against, which I think is a sure sign of narcissism self-righteously driven. Um, so, yeah, it's, I mean, well, look, what's the most prevalent form of photography these days? Selfies. <laughs> you know, and you just stop and think about what's, I mean, look at the biggest problem we run into with helping socialize young people into work organizations. Their sense, for some of them, their sense of entitlement versus those that feel like it's an opportunity and they want to dig in and give it their all. So I, I think there's a lot, of, there are a lot of these forces going around that keep drawing us into the, the negative. Um, yeah. Or as, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi would say, you know, the dark side of the force. <laughs> Great reference. Richard, I want to, uh, this has been such an enlightening conversation, by the way, but uh, let's bring it home with a couple of questions. Okay. Uh, and, uh, and so I always ask people, what, what's really tugging at your heart right now that you would like our listeners to know? So might have something that may be personal to you. Well, this, this issue that I just mentioned about yeah. the antidote to rampant self-righteous, rampant narcissism and self-righteous thinking, which is destroying our ability to get anything done anywhere, not just politically, but in organizations and in communities. Uh, the antidote is to be open to others and care. So mm. that's the thing that I think probably worries me the most. Um, you know, some days it, you know, wakes me up at one or two in the morning and uh, I have trouble getting back to sleep. But yeah, I think that's going on all over the place. Mm. And your final statement, you get to end it the way you like. What is that one thing you would like our listeners to walk away with? Now, it could be my age, but I do feel there's a certain return to some spirit of the 70s. So peace and love, baby. Peace and love. <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure. If um, people want to get in touch with you and connect with you, how, how can you do that online? Uh, my email is my name, richard.boyatzis, B-O-Y-A-T-Z-I-S, at case edu cases c-a-s-e um that's the easiest way and um like you said our new book helping people change is just out from harvard business review uh press and the email is also listed in there but we look forward to hearing from people that's how we find out about people's stories and the sharing of it excellent well it's been a pleasure and an honor sir thank you so much for joining us thank you very much marcel a friend of mine in San Diego listens to this podcast and told me this. He said, Marcel, you need to share more about your views and let your listeners in to what you're thinking. Tell us what's on your mind, he said. So Zane, I heard you, brother. Here's what's on my mind after having talked with Richard Boyatzis. We need to stop trying to fix people and instead coach for compassion, as he said. And for me, what that means is not trying to tell people what to do to get them to where, where I think they should go. Hey, what I think someone 
should do to change according to my ideals and aspirations for them may be totally the opposite of what that person needs. You see, I'm an executive coach. I know this. But Richard made me realize that even I don't coach for compassion enough, meaning I need to be better at helping people change their behavior to become better leaders by first connecting with them relationally and then connecting them to an aspiring goal or dream they've long held. Not my goals for them, but drawing them into a positive vision of who they are and who they would like to be. And that, ladies and gentlemen, stretches my compassion for others to new heights. Thanks for listening, and please don't forget to subscribe. And if love and action is making a difference in your life, will you kindly leave me a review? I would really appreciate that. Next week, I sit down with Joel Peterson, the chairman of JetBlue Airways, to talk about the re-release of his brand new book, The Ten Laws of Trust. See you next time, and don't forget, love in action is what will truly set your leadership apart. Try it. Thanks for joining us on the Love in Action podcast. If you enjoyed this show and want to help get the word out, make sure to subscribe and leave a review.